Welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. Today is a Saturday, February 4th, and boy, we have a lot to cover in today's. Not only are we going to talk about a CPI shocker coming up, but we've got to talk about this Chinese spy balloon. We're going to talk about Tesla and Ford. What did the CEO of Ford just say that was probably the most ludicrous thing that I could possibly imagine, and it was hilarious. You're going to love it. The earnings call was great. I've got the breakdown for you. We'll talk about uh, what hedge funds are up to, what's going on with the Federal Reserve, as well as a bunch of other things. So, a lot to cover. Let's get into it. First, we got to talk about a coming CPI shock because the initial estimates for January's CPI from economists are out. And remember, the next inflation report isn't until February 14th. Between then and now, we've got a few catalysts to go through. So what I'll do is I'll hit what some of these catalysts are going to be in the coming couple weeks here, coming 10 days. And then I'll talk about what's going on with this CPI shock that we're expecting. So Let's hit some catalysts first, and we'll just go in order. So obviously today is Saturday, markets are closed, but we want to prepare for Monday. Monday, we're going to start with Pinterest. Pinterest is going to be really interesting from a consumer point of view, because at least for my purposes, I'm going to be looking at Pinterest for a leading indicator on Etsy sales. I'm an investor in Etsy because I really believe that Etsy's got some real nice margins over a company like Amazon because Etsy is not doing the fulfillment. I think fulfillment is a great way to sandbag your cash flow. You're never going to get it faster. You're better off letting UPS, FedEx, and Amazon fulfillment handle that kind of stuff. Uh, personally, I don't want to be in that business because I think you're in a race to zero dollars of profit. As soon as you get two days of shipping, what happened? Let's go to one day. Then it's same day. Then it's going to be drone deliveries. It's the most expensive thing you can get into, in my opinion. Anyway, Pinterest, I think, is going to be a very interesting leading tell for advertisers as well, because a lot of people spend money advertising, uh, and companies spend money advertising on Pinterest, including Etsy sellers advertise on Pinterest. So interesting tells on the consumer. Uh, we'll get some leading uh, indicators for Etsy. We'll get some uh, sort of more data on Amazon, although we already saw uh, Amazon's earnings. Uh, but we'll also learn a little bit for advertisers. What, uh, what are advertiser appetites like? How does it compare to the advertising declines that we saw at Google? The slight beat, but still reduction in advertising spend that we saw at Facebook, and what could it mean for Trade Desk coming up? Then on Monday, we'll also be talking Activision. Activision Blizzard, they just settled with the SEC for $35 million for frat boy uh, culture. Uh, I, I'm not sure <laughs> if the SEC is taking that entire 35 mil. I, I imagine part of that is going to the uh, uh, to the people who uh, submitted these allegations, to the women who submitted these allegations. Uh, but uh, uh, obviously looking for insights here on Activision Blizzard to see, hey, are they actually going to get acquired by Microsoft or is that deal going to get stuck in the mud? Take-Two Interactive reports, Spirit Airlines reports. Now, Spirit, I think, is actually a leading, potentially deflationary indicator we want to pay attention to because guess what, folks? If the discount airlines... <laughs> if the discount airlines start discounting even more, guess what? I think you're going to end up seeing a pricing war from the big boys. American Airlines, United, JetBlue, Delta. These companies are also going to get into a pricing war and we'll actually see a reduction in ticket prices, which is a disinflationary aspect that we would love to see in the next inflation reports. 
all throughout this year, I'd love to see airfares actually come down. Keep in mind the airline industry is still trying to get back to equilibrium. We're still not at 2019 levels of equilibrium. You still have 10% fewer pilots, about 15% fewer overall staff, yet you've got substantially, uh, or, or you're, you're already basically back to 2019 levels of travel, and those will potentially exceed 2019 levels of travel. So more travel, less capability of servicing, has led to a lot of deflation, uh, sorry, has led to a lot of inflation, let me correct myself there, has led to prices rising, obviously. And we're hoping that balance starts coming back in the next few months, especially as used car prices are expecting to potentially stabilize and that falling anchor of used car prices goes away. So it'd be nice to see some pickup from airlines potentially competing a little bit more. We'll see Simon Property Group report on Monday. Simon Property Group, lar one of the largest mall owners in America. They actually own some pretty good quality malls. I, I personally, I like the company. I like what they do. Uh, I'm not a big fan of investing in commercial real estate. Uh, not at this point. I think valuations are quite stretched at this point in commercial real estate. But We'll get some consumer insights here, uh, especially what kind of businesses are going uh, BK, basically, especially not, not sort of on the big scale, like maybe uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, but how many of the smaller stores are picking up and leaving? Uh, you know, there was a big belief that we're going to be able to go from a 2000 sort of 19 spending world to a COVID everybody spends on world and the reopening, everybody goes back to the malls. But are people actually consistently going back to the malls? How's traffic looking now? compared to the past. Tyson Food, we'll see if some meat prices are coming down. What kind of inflationary aspects are we seeing for food? Really great indicator. Tyson Food should be a great tell for us. I'm a big fan of studying earnings and earnings calls for deflationary signs. So far, almost every single report I'm reading is indicating that the first half of 2023, still tough. Second half expected to be boom time. Now, you know, all of the CEOs could be wrong, but let's just say they weren't wrong in the last time around, where in January of 2022, they're all like, oh, we're gonna have some inflationary problems. <laughs> sure enough, we did. Uh, Tuesday, we'll have Hertz, the rental car company. I think it'll be interesting to see if uh, we have any indicators on their interest in buying even more Teslas. Uh, this is something that they're actually big fans of, buying Teslas and Polestars, actually. Uh, so we'll see if there's any kind of increase or, or more motivation now after price drops to uh, to potentially take advantage of uh, uh, some lower prices and buying some more uh, electric vehicles. We'll see. Apparently, these rent very well. People want to rent these. And also keep in mind the network effects of renting cars. When car companies rent out cars, one of the neat things that happens is people go in the cars and they're like, oh, I kind of like this car. And they potentially want to buy them. Rental car companies are a fantastic way for companies to advertise their car by actually letting people drive them without actually advertising their cars. <laughs> it's great. Uh, you've got BP reporting Tuesday. You've got Fiserv, which is uh, a, uh, the traditional sort of more legacy fintech, if you will, company that uh, also processes a ton of transactions. Uh, I think they're, they represent over 50% of retail store transactions. Think of them as checkout terminals. Old cash registers, baby. Uh, obviously, they're trying to change with the times, but 
We'll get some insight on consumer spending from them. DuPont is an industrial. We'll see what's going on with industrials. So far from 3M and Dow, we've gotten a lot of indicators of layoffs. Uh, industrial layoffs are, are often the last leg to fall in a recession. So uh, we'll see, does this mean we're just getting started or does this mean we're over the pain? Who knows? If you look at the bond market, the pain hasn't even really started yet because of the inverted yield curve and the depth of the inversion. The pain is usually during the re-steepening phase and we've barely started that. KKR real estate, you know, these real estate companies, again, I, I think they're terribly overvalued, but I'm curious to see what kind of redemptions uh, and, uh, or, or how the company's planning on handling the massive redemption requests they're getting. So far, companies like Blackstone and KKR are not fulfilling all of their redemption requests. That's basically when investors are like, dude, uh, we want to get our money out. We want to go buy other stuff. And the company's like, yeah, sorry, market's trash and we don't want to. But if the company gets forced to, then they might have to liquidate real estate, which could lead to a large bump in uh, real estate inventory. Keeping in mind that after that jobs report, we got a nice little tick up again in that 10-year treasury yield. When you get that tick up in the 10-year treasury, you end up pushing mortgage rates up with it. So something to pay attention to is mortgage rates rising, more liquidations at rates, a little bit of a risk. Enphase reports on Tuesday. I do think uh, that Enphase is, is one of the most phenomenal companies that you should consider as an investment. Obviously, hashtag not personalized financial advice for you, but I think it's a phenomenal company. Uh, however, there are massive risks. I think all Enphase has to do is say, hey, we're starting to see a drop-off in residential customers being interested in ordering uh, solar panels because they're worried about the housing market going down. Yeah, that's gonna that could sandbag that stock. You really need growth at Enphase. Now, the stock has thankfully sold off from the the insane valuations of the 330s into the low 20s. I actually picked up a few more shares in the low low 200s. Uh, but uh, but but you know, there's there's still a big risk here. Now, for me, I look at this and go, hey, look, if Enphase falls, yeah, if we can get to that 160 level, I kind of want to start backing up the truck potentially. So we'll see. Enphase, I think, is a phenomenal company. Chipotle reports on Tuesday. Now, I am really excited about Chipotle. Uh, now, Chipotle is one of those that they've managed to figure out pricing power with rice and beans, and it's phenomenal. Now, what's also really incredible about Chipotle, though, is they're one of the leading companies coming out right now saying, look, we're hiring 15,000 people for burrito season. I didn't even know burrito season was a thing. I live in California. Uh, and uh, it's uh, like every day is burrito season here. I think I have burritos like three times a week. <laughs> okay, it's just what we do out here. Burritos are freaking awesome. Uh, anyway, and I also, by the way, just learned like fun fact, I never knew this, cilantro is actually not an American word. It's a Spanish word for uh, coriander. And I'm like, hmm, never knew that. <laughs> the only reason I learned that is because my dad uh, was saying he was going to cook something and he was going to put coriander on it, which is the same word in German, coriander. And, uh, and I'm like, what, what is that? So I translate it and, and uh, it translates to coriander in English too. And I'm like, it's just spelled with a, a C instead of a K. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. So, so I Google it. That's <laughs> another word, cilantro, the, the, the Spanish word for it. I'm like, oh, never knew. Anyway, so uh, apparently they're hiring about 15,000 people for uh, uh, for burrito season. If you actually go to their website, you'll see right now, uh, Chipotle has like 3,200 job openings on their website. Just like insane how much they're hiring. But the leading indicator is probably the best from Chipotle in that Chipotle is, is bluntly saying, look, it's becoming easier for us to hire people. In other words, PP from people 
are, are getting smaller. Wage earners' pricing power is going down. Their PP is going down. And uh, that is leading to more capabilities of businesses who want to expand in a recession to actually hire. Now, I actually think that's phenomenal. I'm a big fan and massive believer that in a recession, you double down on your business if you're a business owner, right? And you prepare to take market share. So that way, when you're in that next bull run, you're a force to be reckoned with. That that's that's my my thesis. And so I'm a big fan of doubling down. I think that's exactly what Chipotle is doing here, and I respect that. I think that's awesome. So uh, we'll see what happens with Chipotle. That is uh, Tuesday. Uh, we've got consumer credit also coming out on Tuesday. Tuesday's consumer credit numbers. We are looking at 25 trillion versus a prior release of 27.96. Uh, that would be good because consumer credit has been skyrocketing and it's time for that to come down a little bit. Trade balance is expected to come in at about negative 68.5. Keep in mind that every time consumer credit skyrockets, people start panicking uh, over the, the idea that uh, uh, consumers are going into massive loans just to sort of sustain uh, their, uh, their, their, their earnings and uh, or sort of I should say they're spending. In March of 2022, we hit $46 billion of consumer, uh, con uh, consumer credit, which was insane. Uh, it was one of the largest numbers ever. In June, we hit 39.7. It's recently come down to a low of 23. So if we can sort of resettle back to maybe a longer term average, that would be good. Pre-pandemic, Consumer credit had a high of about 27, which is roughly the survey we expect now. Uh, and it averaged closer to about 22 on sort of a monthly basis. Uh, and during the pandemic, there were times, obviously, consumer credit even went negative. People were just paying off their debt. They're like, oh my God, everything's going to end. The world's going to end. Uh, yeah, that was a crazy time. Anyway, uh, Wednesday, we have a wholesale trade coming out, uh, as well as some other earnings, of course. We'll review those. Wholesale trade is expected to be negative 0.2%, and wholesale inventories on the month-over-month -month basis is expected to be 0.1%. We have Uber coming out. I don't have too much to say about Uber. I, personally, I think Uber and, and Lyft are uh, services that I don't think could ever really make a profit. I think the drivers are the ones who are going to monetize most of the profit, uh, and uh, anything that's really left ends up getting spent on OPEX at these companies. That's not necessarily to say they're bad companies. I mean, after all, they provide food for all of their employees, basically, right? They provide pay for all their employees. So, you know, having a company that, that makes no money is not necessarily a bad thing because all the people working there make money. I just don't think it's a good investment because that means the investors aren't making money. Uh, then you've got CVS and Disney. Disney coming out on Wednesday. Now, Disney is going to be interesting because Disney is going through this, this phase of cannibalizing all of the hardworking people's efforts at the parks and the cruise lines uh, and, and, and really the, the sector that makes money for Disney. Disney makes a crap load of money at their parks. People are spending more money than ever, 50% more per person spending, per capita spending at Disney parks right now. It's insane. People are going nutty 
Okay, like people love spending money at Disney, but the brand value is huge, even though they, they write their goodwill as even lower than Teletalks, which is like hilarious to me. Disney is a quality brand, okay? We, we know that. Unless, of course, we want to start talking politics and then we could have debates about don't say gay and, and, and then everybody is going to start getting fussy and go, what do you mean? What Are you some liberal who loves Disney? Like, we're not going to get into that, okay? We're talking about pee-pee here, okay? We're not going to talk about children politics. We're going to talk about pee-pee, pricing power. And their brand has a lot of pricing power. Now, the, the question is, and, and sure, some of that politically has been re reduced a little bit, but uh, the, the question is really... How much money is Disney going to keep throwing into the entertainment world of Disney Plus? Because that's the big money sink right now. It's kind of like a metaverse situation where on one hand, you've got Facebook taking in all this money from advertising, but what are they doing? They're dumping it all into the metaverse. And that's a little bit disappointing for investors because You've got a profitable segment that's feeding a not-so-profitable business. Now, the hope, obviously, with Disney Plus is that Disney Plus can continue to grow subscriber base, but also grow faster and better than Netflix. Obviously, Disney Plus came out a whole lot later than uh, Netflix. But as of late, they've still been growing better than Netflix. And the goal, obviously, keep that going. But also, I think the biggest, most interesting part for Disney for me is how is the advertising going? Because so far, Netflix suggests the advertising isn't actually going that great, uh, that they're having a rougher sign-up period, and that they're potentially even considering going to a freemium model where basically they give free Netflix service, but then you get a bunch of ads because they're just not getting a lot of people signing up for the pay and still have ad service. It's actually not a terrible surprise to me. But Disney's trying something like this as well. And I'm very curious to see what kind of indicators we can get from Disney for my favorite trade desk and connected TV advertising. So far, it's not looking that great for advertising. Though I've got my fingers crossed that uh, trade desk can still grow in this recessionary environment. Might take an L on that one though. So we want to be careful on that. Robinhood Wednesday. Now, I'm very curious also to see how they're potentially making money because even though we know companies like SoFi are making more money by attracting depositors, offering a higher yield for savings accounts, attracting depositors, and then lending those deposits out and making money on loans, Robinhood doesn't do lending other than margin lending and margin lending is falling, but they're also now offering 4.15% on cash deposits, which by the way, is really good. Like if you've got cash sitting around, in my opinion, you stick it into like a wealth run or Robin Hood. I don't care what you use, uh, and, and milk that yield. It's incredible. Like why bother dealing with treasuries when you could just milk that? It's great. It gives you that liquidity too, instant liquidity. It's phenomenal. So, what we've got to consider uh, with uh, with Robin Hood is they're paying out a lot of uh, their, their yield, basically, what they could be earning in the market uh, on cash deposits that they have. And so I'm curious to see as that spreads compression uh, or compressing, is their revenue going down? We'll see. And we have had a couple green months here uh, in the stock market, or maybe at least a green January. We'll see if that was maybe will get maybe a good, better set of guidance for the first quarter of the year uh, from Robinhood, but no guarantees. Then we'll also get a firm really big consumer spending play here. But I think biggest part for a firm is how are those default rates? I don't think a firm's really been around long enough to actually be popular during a recession. And now we're in a recessionary environment and a firm's basically playing the first rodeo of recession. Now, a firm likes to argue that, oh, well, people need us more in a recession. 
Sure, but are they burning you more in a recession? We'll see. Goodyear reports, wind reports on Wednesday, Mattel reports. The, uh, if you look at sort of uh, the, the earnings that we've already gotten from companies like Hasbro, ga games, like toys, not looking good. So big red flag there for Mattel. We'll see how much of that is already priced in. Uh, consumer and inflationary spend, obviously, for Goodyear will be interesting. Uh, and then also when, how's travel doing? How's Macau doing? How is the reopening going in China from the Macau's point of view? Uh, and, and to me, that's actually going to be a Starbucks tell because I'm, I'm pretty excited about what I'm seeing at Starbucks. So then on Thursday, we get uh, Pepsi, Pepsi, Pepsi. Uh, we'll see what kind of inflationary costs we're getting at Pepsi. Uh, we've got Toyota, Credit Suisse, PayPal, Lyft, Cloudflare. Now that'll be a big one for software as service spend. If bill.com is any tell, Cloudflare is gonna get reamed. Software service companies, especially ones that are not profitable, are probably not going to do too well in the next few earnings seasons. So there's a big red flag for Cloudflare. However, if it can beat on forecasts, whew, it could move bigly. We'll see. I, I, I would expect the implied volatility for Cloudflare is probably in excess of 15% uh, for, for uh, a move in earnings, kind of especially following the bill.com. And uh, we can actually find out what that is by uh, looking at what the implied volatility is on earnings day next week. And it is, ooh, I was close, 12.1% is the implied volatility. The average volatility for the stock is uh, generally uh, for earnings is 5.9%. So you've got two and a half times as much volatility uh, expected for these SaaS companies. On Friday, we get the University of Michigan inflation expectations read. And then the week after that, we get CPI, which we've just got some of our initial surveys in for. Let me first hit U of M sentiment, uh, and then we'll also look at these CPI forecasts. Uh, after this stream, by the way, we're going to start working on changing the pricing as we promised and removing that coupon for the programs on Building Your Wealth link down below. I just wanted to give you a heads up in case you're wondering like, hey, it's still there. It's like, yep, just woke up. <laughs> Don't worry, we're gonna change that. So we're, uh, we'll get those changes done today. Uh, all right, so what do we got here? U of M sentiment and current conditions and expectations. The survey says 65 for sentiment, 68 for current conditions, expectations 63. These are all slightly higher than the last with the exception of current conditions slightly lower. But what's interesting to me is the survey actually shows the one year inflation expectation moving up slightly from 3.9 to four. Ideally, we come in low on that. The most important thing right now is that we keep inflation expectations low and anchored. That's the most important thing as we go forward. Uh, especially after a hot jobs report for January, which we could try to explain away, but let's just be real. It's all going to come down to inflation and inflation expectations. Right now as well, it's worth noting that inflation expectations are uh, on the, via the five-year break-even, are still sitting at about 2.3. Uh, we could look at this graphically as well. It, here on screen now, if you're watching, we can see we're sitting at 2.3. That downtrend is really strong, very, very strong downtrend, no matter how you slice it. Uh, however, we are still substantially higher than where we were in 2018, especially the Fed went dovish uh, right around here at this bar, which sits you at about 1.6 for the five-year break-even. We're sitting at 2.3 right now, so we've still got some work to do. However, this really reiterates the the Nike swoosh scenario of, of a stock market recovery if we slowly start seeing it coming down here. Uh, we shall see. 
Next, inflation report as well with expectations. This is sort of the expectation set we've been waiting for. Uh, so far, we do not have all of the expectations. For example, we do not yet have a survey in on year-over-year -year, uh, inflation expectations, but we do have some month-over-month -month numbers. And I think this is actually very interesting. CPI, month-over-month -month survey. Last month, the actual result was a negative 0.1. This month, uh, for January, it's expected to be 0.5. That's a really high survey. I'm actually really bullish on that. Even, look, listen, if this survey comes in really high, guess what? It's really easy for it to miss to the low side because if it comes in at 0.4, you still win. <laughs> you see what I mean? Now, 0.5 though on the month over month, pretty up there. And this is not the core measure, this is the headline measure. And it has to do with energy prices having risen. Now, 0.5, again, it's hot. That's a 6% annualized rate of inflation. That's not great. We don't wanna see 6% annualized inflation. We want to see less, something around 2%. So we'll really have to pay attention to the core survey. Now the core survey is not out yet, but it really sets us up for a shocker. Now we do have a core month to month survey though. Uh, sorry, uh, oh yeah, we do have a core month to month survey. Uh, we just don't have core year over year. Okay. So the core month-to-month -month survey taking out food and energy is actually also expected to come in hotter. Last month, we were sitting at 0.3%, which is 3.6% annualized. This month, the forecast is 0.4. So both of these month-over-month -month reads are setting up for a, a, a high report. Again, though, if we go in with high expectations, it's easier to miss to the downside, which is nice. We want that. Now, not considering core for a moment, if we just consider the headline, we could look at what's been going on with oil. And what we'll find in the last three months is we had a spike in January, which this helps explain some of that headline inflation. Look at this. Starting at the first week of January, we actually ran up on Brent. That's your international crude oil cost per barrel. We ran up to about 84 to 87. And we sat there quite a bit under this trade thesis that, uh-oh, here we go. You've got uh, a lot of inflationary pressure because of the Chinese reopening. But what's remarkable about that, because I don't think the Chinese reopening is going to lead to that much inflation, is what do we have over here? You've got this decline in oil prices, international oil prices again, to under 80. So you're actually now starting to get to the same levels that we had the first week of January uh, and some of the lows that we had the first week of December. So I'm excited to see those inflationary pressures on the headline go down and hopefully stay down. But what about core? Because that core month over month, uh, even though we don't have the year over year estimates yet, that core month over month is very interesting to me. Point four. Why is core expected to rise? Is it because those used cars aren't expected to go down as much? Is it because we're uh, not seeing airfares come down as much yet? Is it because household data isn't coming in weak yet? And so even though that core coming in at 0.4 would be expected to be weaker uh, than, than where we have been, which has been anywhere between 0.5 to 0.6 in the middle of last year, it's still hot. We'd still like to see this come in at say 0.1 or 0.2. So we could really reiterate that disinflationary narrative that's needed in core. Now, be careful though, so far, we only have like six to 10 estimates coming in for some of these early estimates. 
What's going to happen over the next week is we're going to get many more economists providing their estimates. Now, we know they could be crazy off and wrong, but at least it'll give us some kind of guide of what the market wants to beat. And as long as we can beat those estimates, the market usually goes up. So we like that. We like it when the market goes up. Unless, of course, you're a short seller. <laughs> anyway, this gives us a breakdown of some of the massive catalysts coming in the next two weeks. You'll notice there actually aren't that many other than the inflation report. And really, the next FOMC meeting is not until March 22nd. So we've got another five, six weeks here before we have to deal with the Fed again. That's also where we're going to get a new summary of economic projections. That summary of economic projections is going to be critical because we want to see a softening from December. But that softening from December, I think, is only going to get written into that summary of economic projections. If the CPI report coming up actually comes in weaker than expected. Fingers crossed. Alrighty then. Let's see what we got here. So we've got a question. Uh, we have Apple last report. Uh, 2022 versus 2021, see the dates in the report. They added an extra week of sales. Sales loss was more than expected. Yeah, this is true. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are pissed that Apple stock went up on Friday. I think a lot of people wanted to buy the dip and then they couldn't because the stock price actually went up. And so people are like, what is going on here? This is ridiculous. Uh, and uh, the reality is the market doesn't so much care about that extra week. I think it was very well disclosed that there was an extra week. I think what the market cares about is uh, this idea that, hey, what's, what caused the sales miss? And the sales miss seemed to be caused, at least if you listen to Tim Cook, by supply chain issues. Now, personally, I wonder, is that a cop-out? Are we actually going to see those supply chain issues resolve and then all of a sudden all this crazy demand come back for iPhones, uh, which missed, wearables, which missed, and Macs, which missed? iPads was the only thing that beat. Who knows? Maybe. After all, iPads had the worst supply chain issues last year for Apple, and now we're beating. So maybe because they're becoming available again, that's why we're seeing those beats. Who knows? We'll see. We will see. So... Wonderbread Assboy says, stop spreading FUD. You know, your name tells me how seriously I need to take you. Lyft is already profitable. Uber can never. Ooh. Well, we'll see their profitability next week when they report. Is this real me, Kevin, or someone rebroadcasting him? Asks JumpyBumpy69 from Twitch. Yeah, I am multi-streaming from on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitch right now. So you can watch on any of those platforms. Apparently, I can't stream on Twitter. But who knows? All right. Next up, we got to talk about the balloon. We got to talk about my thesis on the balloon. What's going on with the balloon? <laughs> Stupid balloon. I shorted the market for the first time in two years. The dump is coming. Too far, too fast. Ouch. Welcome, Brian Anthony. Thanks for being a new member. All right. Stand by. We got to talk about this crazy Chinese spy balloon because uh, yesterday I jokingly tweeted, which of course I encourage you to follow me on Twitter. You can see some of the crazy stuff that I post uh, there at Real Meet Kevin. But yesterday I posted this crazy post that here is a leaked 
photo of U.S. airspace tomorrow following Biden's harsh actions today. And this post was inspired by the fact that we didn't shoot down the large Chinese spy balloon. And uh, my joke was that there are now going to be eight of them in the sky. And obviously I'm being facetious because I don't actually expect there are gonna be like eight of them in the sky. But I, I photoshopped an image of eight of them in the sky anyway for the lulls. Now what's remarkable is no earlier, or, or should I say no later than five o'clock yesterday, do I get a message or a notification that now all of a sudden a second Chinese spy balloon has been discovered in Latin America. And apparently China is sending them all over the place now. We have no idea how many of them there are. These instances have come up in the past, but apparently now there are two Chinese spy balloons floating around. Now it's remarkable, and I'm gonna give some thesis in terms of my theory as to what's actually happening here because I've got an idea. Apparently and allegedly, and I don't know if this was like an after the fact backlash and so they wanted to politically re-engineer the message, but some people are saying, hey, Joe Biden actually wanted to shoot down the plane, but, but the Pentagon's like, no, no, you can't shoot it down because the damn balloon is like they're the size of three school buses wide. And if you shoot it down, what ends up happening, you end up getting a lot of a debris field. And if you have a debris field, guess what? Uh, you might potentially end up hurting people and that's not good. Sure, but then again, the darn balloon was also floating around Montana and Kansas. And let's just say there's plenty of open space for you to calculate the trajectory of you shooting this thing down and it landing where there ain't nobody you gotta worry about. Now, obviously, uh, who knows what actually happened. Did Joe Biden say, let's shoot it down after he got a bunch of backlash on the internet? <laughs> or did that happen before? Nobody knows. But Canada apparently first saw the spy balloon coming through their airspace. It kind of floated over the uh, Pacific Ocean from China and, and through Canada and then down through Montana. Obviously, the concern is, hey, man, why y'all flying spy balloons where we've got military bases around the heart of America? China's like, no, it's just a weather balloon. It's just following the jet stream. We can't control it. But then yesterday, the Wall Street Journal's like, wait a minute. The darn thing just changed, it just maneuvered into a different direction. It obviously is controllable. The Chinese are controlling this. It's probably not a weather balloon. Well, no duh, it's probably not the weather balloon. You know what, because China tells us, oh, well, it's just a weather balloon and it's conducting other scientific research as well. Sure, let's fly a balloon, uh, you know, somewhere around 60,000 feet in the air above America and get substantially better real-time imagery of America than we could get from a satellite. It's kind of interesting. Now, what's also very interesting, and this is where I wanna get into my thesis as to what's actually happening here, because obviously the Pentagon doesn't wanna shoot this thing down. Although there were some videos on Twitter of what looked like potentially something getting shot down. Nobody really knows what this was yet. Uh, but I also tweet replied to it yesterday and I'm like, uh, what is going on here? So I'll go ahead and play that. It's basically apparently a video uh, from Montana where somebody says a military jet just buzzed a neighborhood. And so after a military jet buzzed a neighborhood, this person takes out their camera and starts filming. And you get this footage of what looks like something being shot down. I, you know, can't actually confirm that. With a malicious intent. Uh, hold on here. Uh, I don't think we have audio there. I don't know that there is actually audio. Oh, there we go. Okay. So you get some kind of flash and some kind of boom. I'll replay that. Yeah. So basically what you have is something that looks like 
and I'll calm it in the sky, big contrail of something falling, and uh, there was some sort of explosion in the sky. We don't know if that was uh, just the breaking the sound barrier, like a jet breaking the sound barrier. That's entirely possible. We don't know if something was actually shot down. It certainly looks that way from the picture. The Pentagon and the White House say, no, nothing was shot down. And then the balloon was no longer spotted in Montana. It's been spotted in Kansas. And, and now it's expected to be somewhere over by Tennessee. Now, then it begs the question, are there multiple spy balloons already? Well, given that we saw another one in Latin America, maybe there are. Who knows? But what we do know is exactly what Colleen here says. China lies about everything. Well, yeah, there's no doubt about that. But I think nobody actually in China believes that America believes this is a spy balloon. Let me tell you what I think this actually is, starting with where it is. So this spy balloon is floating around at 60,000 feet. Now that is above our air traffic. Our air traffic's generally at 30 to 35,000 feet and private jet travel is somewhere around 40 to 45,000 feet. Now what's interesting about that is private jets, like a Citation that was flying, uh, I think it was a Latitude that was flying around Kansas, actually reported a derelict balloon floating just a few thousand feet above it. And they report this to the FAA uh, and I think the message that's being sent is, hey, we're really, here's China, really trying to purposefully toy with your airspace. Even though we're at that safe level, 60,000 feet or close to private jet travel is kind of a way of saying, hey, we're just going to taunt you, America. Usually we fly spy balloons between 80 to 100,000 feet. Why don't we fly this spy balloon at 60,000 feet? So that way the private jet people can see it and the Americans can see it from the, from the ground. And it sends an uncertainty. It sends a signal to Americans of, oh my gosh, the Chinese are watching us. On top of that, it sends a message to the Biden administration of, look, y'all aren't doing anything, right? even though maybe they want to and they're choosing not to, whatever. It's China's way of basically telling Americans, you should be afraid of China because your government ain't going to do anything about us. And you know why this is happening? In my opinion, this is retaliation for two big things. Number one, the CHIPS Act, sanctioning China and limiting the export of high quality advanced manufacturing chip machines like advanced lithography machines from ASML, the Dutch company, to China. A Dutch company is not allowed to sell advanced lithography machines to China because America said so. China is like, how dare you? F you. Now people are like, why can't a Dutch company sell products to China? Well, because if they do, the United States is, will say, fine. We won't do business with you anymore. And guess who does the most business for advanced chips with companies like Taiwan Semiconductors. Obviously, Taiwan Semiconductors doesn't really like what's going on in China. And ASML. Obviously, America. Because not only do we have the largest chip demand in the world, but we also have the largest demand for, through our chip demand, uh, chip making equipment from companies like ASML, or maybe even other companies like Intel. Intel is the third largest chip manufacturer in America, and it's expected to spend over $100 billion making new chip-making plants uh, over the next three to four years. 
It's going to be a lot of chip making capacity and a lot more orders for chip manufacturers or, or chip equipment manufacturers, again, like that Dutch company, ASML. And so what does ASML not want to do? They don't want to lose <laughs> American business. So they comply. So who loses? Well, we lose in part because things get more expensive when you cut out part of the world, right? Consumers always end up losing when it comes to sanctions because things become more expensive. That's just simple econ 101. We won't go through that sort of explanation. But what's more important is China gets pissed because China's like, you're saying we have to take the old, like third generation or like the, the old generation crap and you guys get all the new stuff, all the advanced stuff. And America's like, yeah, what are you going to do about it? And China is kind of like the little toddler talking to their parent. Like the parent is obviously stronger, but the toddler is starting to grow up a little bit. And they realize that, well, even though they may get thrown in time out, they could still throw crap down the stairs and piss you off. And that's kind of what China's doing because it's sending the signal of, hey, hey, we can, we can fight back too. Obviously, that's somewhat what China is doing here. They're trying to purposely, oh look, Fox is playing it right now on TV. There's, there's a video of it. Pentagon confirms second Chinese balloon. In my opinion, what you have is you have China trying to create a retaliatory saber rattling environment for America and send the signal that if you limit us from being able to buy chips and you keep doing business with Taiwan, well, we'll do missile tests. We'll do military tests. We'll fly balloons over your country. And you know what? That's politically going to look bad for you because guess what? You're too much of a weedy baby to actually shoot him down. And because he ain't going to shoot him down, we're going to look great. And then guess what we're going to do? The more you sanction us, the more balloons we're going to launch and the more stupid crap we're going to do to make Americans feel worried about China. Because the more Americans are worried about China, the more Americans are going to call into their Congress people and go, do something. We hate that our administration and Congress people aren't going to do anything. We're not going to vote for you anymore. And then in some degree, that actually makes politicians go, maybe we don't want to be so harsh on China because I'm losing votes over here. See how it's all like a game of 4D chess? You think China really gives a crap? about what they can't already see with satellites, this higher resolution imagery. You think they really give a crap what Nancy's doing in her backyard in San Francisco? Although they didn't fly over San Francisco. Uh, and there's probably not much going on in the backyard over there anyway. You think we really care what Karens are doing in Montana in their backyards or what these military facilities look like that have our ICBMs and nuclear warheads in the middle of nowhere. We really think China really needs a weather balloon to spot that and that they'd really be so dumb to signal some form of like impending attack. Of course not, because there is no impending attack. It's all just saber rattling. It's for the show. It's designed to make everybody talk about China. And guess what? When everybody talks about China, it puts political pressure on a politicians to do something. It makes them look weak. And then they get pissed because they don't want to look like little weenie babies. But now they do look like weenie babies. And so guess who wins? China. So whether or not you actually shoot the balloon down, China wins. Because China says, we are a loose cannon. Even though they won't ever actually do anything. Well, no guarantees, just knock on wood. But that's the signal they're trying to send is, hey, we can. Look what we just did. We just flew a balloon over your country and you did nothing. Y'all weak. It's all gamesmanship. That's all this whole balloon thing is. I mean, look at it. 
Look at this. Look at the caption on Fox News. I mean, it's no surprise on Fox News. Biden silent on Chinese spy balloon, right? Let's just listen for a moment. I mean, in Montana, we have an Air Force base. Uh, we have about a third of our uh, strategic uh, missile defense silos scattered across yeah, the land. So here's a Republican, the governor of Montana. And what's he doing? He's bagging on the Democratic leadership. Obviously, that pisses off the Dems. And that is how China wins. China wins by Fox News showing all the voting people. The voting people wake up early, okay? The old people wake up early and watch Fox and Friends. And us who are watching now, okay? And if you're old, I respect you. If you're young, I respect you too. I think it's great. I like waking up early, but everybody's different. You know, no shade on somebody who wants to replay it later. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, but look. This is exactly the media attention China wants. They wanted this sucker to be seen because it's part of psychological warfare. That's what this is. It's so simple. Nobody gets hurt except Americans' feelings. And that's what China is doing, in my opinion, in retaliation for Taiwan. Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan. Kevin McCarthy potentially promising to visit Taiwan. And the CHIPS Act. China's pissed. They want the advanced chips because advanced chips, guess what? Advanced chips go into bombs, they go into missiles, they go into computers, and they go into things that people buy, like iPhones. And people want the advanced chips and the latest and greatest. Who wants to buy an old chip uh, or a phone? Nobody. Everyone wants the latest and greatest. So who wins? America. America wins militarily. America wins with product sales. And China loses. And China's pissed about that. China doesn't want to lose. China already got embarrassed enough with the COVID zero lockdowns. So now they're waving their little saber around in the air again. And that's exactly what you have going on here. It's simple psychological warfare. That's it. Now, I, <laughs> now I understand we can get, you know, we, we like, let me just put it this way. And I'm not going to comment on it beyond just reading it out loud. Joe can't do anything. China owns Joe and Hunter. They have given both millions. <laughs> All right. And that is my talk on the Chinese balloon. <laughs> yes. So that's psychological warfare 101 for you. All righty. So um, let me take a listen here for a moment. What, what, is, what is Fox talking about here? I, you, I lived in Nebraska when I was a you kid. You did? Yeah, we'll talk about that after. Okay. Uh, well, and so this is not that cold. Are you sitting here thinking, why are these guys complaining about this cold? Because we can tell you. That's the Rockefeller Center, isn't it? Where Pete and Rachel and Will are. Sorry. Come on. They're, they're inside the studio complaining that it's cold. Take a look at the weather map. Show you what's going on. It is obviously really cold here. These are the actual air temperatures. And of course, it gets. Okay, I don't know why we're looking at the weather right now. Uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> I got distracted for some reason. Uh, all right. So, uh, now we have to talk about, what else do we have to talk about? There's a lot. Okay, here we go. Next. Oh, we got to talk about Elon, baby. Elon. Elongate. <laughs> uh, Elon and Ford. Oh, this is going to be a fun one. Elon Musk and Ford. Oh boy, we've got a lot to talk about when it comes to Elon Musk and Ford. Elon Musk just got the results of his lawsuit. Not only that, but Ford has some insane 
things to say, and boy, it's gonna make all the Tesla people nervous. Or will it? We'll talk about all of that in this video. So first, Musk and Tesla were sued with potential damages as high as six to $12 billion for Elon Musk's August of 2018 tweet, taking Tesla private at 420. The SEC alleged that that tweet was false, that Elon Musk had no rational basis for making that tweet. Elon Musk replied and said, I totally did. Not only did I have Goldman Sachs and bankers lined up to fund it, but the Saudi Arabian private investment fund was essentially providing me with a handshake deal that they would help me buy out Tesla. And even though later there was some confusion and some backtracking on that handshake deal, Elon Musk believes that at the time he made the tweet, he was completely correct in making the tweet. The SEC ended up settling with Elon Musk and fining him $20 million, requiring Elon Musk to have a Twitter babysitter. That is somebody who monitors Elon Musk's tweets before he actually posts his tweets. Now, I actually doubt that happens, but so far the SEC has been relatively silent on whether or not Elon Musk actually is, maybe because he hasn't been tweeting stuff like taking Tesla private at 420 anymore. And most of his tweets have turned more into political tweets. <laughs> but anyway, moving on from that settlement, which Elon Musk says he was forced into because otherwise banks were going to limit access to his wholesale lines of credit, which would have stalled Model 3 production at Tesla and led to a potential Tesla bankruptcy. What happened today? Fast forward. Investors say they didn't make enough money on their Tesla option and trade contracts and they missed out on the rally. And... Even though the judge in the San Francisco district, Judge Chan, ended up telling the court Elon Musk uh, uh, tweets about testing, uh, taking Tesla private at 420 funding secured were untrue. Even though the judge said Elon Musk tweets were untrue, which would have easily set up for an appeals court claim because that could be deemed a lack of due process. Despite that, the jury ended up deciding that Elon Musk had no liability in making the tweet funding secured and any of the trade losses that people incurred or lack of additional gains that people wanted were the fault of people themselves. And so the entire class action lawsuit was dismissed. And this is shocking given that it was in a San Francisco court this happened, which goes to show that even people in San Francisco realize what happened to Elon Musk is BS which is pretty dang impressive. Now, don't get me wrong. I like people in San Francisco. I think they're very smart and intelligent people. And I think this shows justice because it shows that the people are not as loony as the political system is in San Francisco. I think the judge system, the judicial system in San Francisco is substantially more rigged. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? I'm gonna go slight tinfoil hat here, but I highly believe it. I have been in San Francisco courts I represented myself because I had to fire my attorney in a San Francisco court because I couldn't get any Democratic attorney to represent me. Why? Because I was running for governor against the Democratic governor and nobody wanted to be seen as representing somebody fighting the Democratic governor because if you take a Democratic attorney into a Democratic court while you're trying to replace the existing governor, 
nobody else wants to work with that attorney because you can't go against the existing governor. How dare there be a free political process? But here's the part that could potentially be slightly rigged of California courts, and it's potentially why Judge Chan, okay, again, maybe slightly tinfoil hat here, but potentially why Judge Chan went hard on Elon Musk, suggesting to the jury that Elon Musk tweets are false. Judge Chan is a Democratic judge in the San Francisco district. Democratic judges in the San Francisco district have a very close relationship to the governor of California. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters a lot because the governor of California, anytime he gets sued, his cases end up in courts in Northern California, San Francisco and Sacramento courts, Northern district courts. And guess what those judges want? They want to be in the good graces of the governor. Now, why would judges in Northern California want to be in the good graces of the governor of California? Oh, that's right, because the governor of California is usually seen as a stepping stone to become president. Oh, well, that's interesting. So if you're the governor of California, maybe you want to run to be president one day, which is exactly what Gavin Newsom is basically revving up to do. Should Joe Biden not run for president in 2024, we widely expect Gavin Newsom to step in. Now, why is that really interesting? Because if Gavin Newsom were to become president, guess what the president does? Ah, they appoint federal judges. That means you take judges from the state level and you move them up to federal judges. And guess what federal judges get to potentially become? Supreme Court judges. And so you got to kind of stroke the governor as a California judge to have hopes that the California governor becomes president. And then potentially you get promoted to a federal judge and maybe a Supreme Court judge in the future. It's all part of the game. So when I say I'm putting on my tinfoil hat, let's be real. Some of that stuff actually happens. It's all long-term planning, okay? This is why the judicial system in California really mirrors whatever the hell the governor wants. So if you go against the governor, even if you have a great argument, you're more likely to lose. Now, what do we have to say about Elon Musk and Tesla? Well, first, it's great that Elon Musk and Tesla don't have to actually deal with a potential six to $12 billion liability. Although if this did end up uh, being a loss, that six to $12 billion liability would have probably been settled down to 500 million to a billion dollars. But it's nice and after hours, after the court case was decided, Tesla stock did rise about 2%. It never really made it to $200 though. So good news for those of you who do not want me to dye my hair green. I will not be dyeing my hair green. Tesla did not make it. It came within a dollar and one cent and it just couldn't make it. It just didn't have the pricing power to make it there. However, what you did end up having was Tesla increasing prices for some of its Model Ys. Model Y long range was increased 2.8%. Model Y standard was increased 1.8 or 1.75%. However, the Model 3 rear, rear wheel drive vehicle was dropped in price 1.1%. So you've had some small pricing adjustments and you did also have the IRS and Treasury Department finally providing the appropriate clarity that was needed to indicate that now all Model Y vehicles actually qualify for the full $7,500 federal tax EV credit, including Model Ys that sell up to an $80,000 MSRP, up from $55,000. This is a great win for not just Tesla, but quite frankly, any EV manufacturer. So 
This is fantastic. It is great that these tax credit rules have been clarified. So good win on the lawsuit by Musk. We learned a little bit about the rigged system and we learned about EV tax credits. But what the hell did Ford just do? Okay, Ford, this is a laughable one. This, I'm gonna bring you first to the most salient part of the Ford earnings call. And I have to tell you, this part was ridiculous because they basically sell you a stock that isn't Ford. And that's the funny part. So first, what we wanna do is we wanna go to an analyst, Rob Latch. Rob Latch asks the question, considering everyone's aspirations for growth in electric vehicles, do you think you can stand by pricing assumptions? And maybe in another way of asking this, do you think you can sell? And I'm putting this on screen now as well, so you can see him just reading this verbatim from the earnings call transcript, okay? This is what I do, by the way. I read this stuff with my team. Team, by the way, amazing team now. I used to do all this stuff alone. Now I get to do more content because I've got a great team helping me. These guys are awesome. Team's amazing, y'all rock. Uh, but anyway, do you think you can sell a $40,000 electric crossover with a 20% gross margin? Now, why would Rod Latch be asking this question? Because Tesla, folks, Tesla said, worst case scenario, their gross profit margin would be 20%. So, in other words, Rod is asking the question here, hey, do you think you can compete with Tesla's margins? And let me provide you the CEO of Ford's response. He starts off by saying, that's a very important question. The reality is we will, we, we are structuring our portfolio to compete in very specific segments. Now, if you just read the transcript there, it seems like he's saying we will get to 20% gross margins. But I actually went to listen to the audio and he corrected himself. He didn't confirm that they will. He kind of stumbled over that. The way I just said it was kind of like he did. The reality is we were, we were restructuring to, to our portfolio to compete in very specific segments. Crossover is turning to be more core civic to the EV business, blah, blah, blah. Talks about the Lightning being sold out even though they are not profitable on the EV segment. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The real driver of our future profitability is on second cycle products. And this is really interesting because listen to them talk about the iterative process of manufacturing. We didn't know when we designed the first three EV products, we didn't know that wiring harnesses for the Mach-E were longer than they needed to be. We didn't know that batteries were heavier than they needed to be. We didn't know that we underinvested in braking technology to save on battery size. In other words, they're basically saying, look, we've been really unprofitable at EVs because we don't know what we're doing with EV manufacturing, but we're learning. Okay, that's super normal, right? So far, very, very normal to expect the iterative process of manufacturing to make a better, uh, uh, to make a better vehicle, right? To be clear, this is the earnings call. So this is not an article. This is an earnings call from Ford. So they talk about how they need, they're learning how to manufacture better, and they're very optimistic. They're also very optimistic because they have a lot of new talent. Now, don't get me wrong, but when I hear they have a lot of new talent, it kind of suggests that the old talent just don't know how to make electric vehicles. And that's because, obviously, they're in the internal combustion engine business. Now, what's interesting here 
is they're basically selling this idea that we want to make cars with fewer parts. The CEO of Ford is basically handing it to Tesla, who's making cars with fewer parts via their gigapresses. But that's not even the entertaining part. Let's keep going. We want to play hard. Our strength, our commercial, truck, larger vehicles on the category side. We don't want to have too many choices. This was a little, the transcription here wasn't great. But basically they're saying, we don't want to have too many cars for people to choose from because that puts a lot of costs on our engineers and we're trying to be more profitable on electric vehicles. So we want to give people fewer cars to choose from, which is the opposite of what legacy car automakers usually do. And it's exactly what Tesla does. You don't have that many choices. It's kind of like Ford uh, back in the 1920s, Henry Ford. You could have any car that you want as long as it's black. And it was basically just a black Model T, right? And so they, want, they like that because you can have better margins when they, you do this. They're also talking about designing smaller batteries for competitive size. Now, I personally think that is actually really great, and it's something that Tesla's probably going to do in the future as well. You're going to end up coming out with 20 kilowatt hour uh, battery packs as soon as people get over the, head, the, the mental head trip that you need a big ass battery that you're lugging around. The fact of the matter is most people don't need a big battery in their car because what it does is it adds more weight and ruins your fuel efficiency. You really only need 80 mile charges and you plug the thing in every night. So you should have a daily commuter and then maybe a more long range vehicle. I think that's perfect because most households have multiple cars anyway. So then this is where things get interesting, okay? He talks about how basically we have negative pricing on electric vehicles right now. And this is very true. Ford does not expect to be profitable on electric vehicles until 2026. There's a company called uh, Ford Authority. They are a, uh, they're, they're sort of a news organization. It's kind of like a nine to five Mac, but for cars. And uh, here's the article from them where they talk about investing $50 billion in electric vehicles in the next coming years, how they're trying to produce 600,000 electric vehicles by the end of 2023. This is a recent article, by the way, from Feb 1 here. And what's interesting is 600,000 vehicles is, is a run rate of about 50,000 vehicles per month. In 2022, guess how many vehicles Ford produced per month that were electric? They want to produce 50,000. Guess how many they actually produced? 12, okay? They produced 12,000 vehicles. So they want to more than 4X how many vehicles they're making that are electric in their ramp process. Uh, they expect to get to 2 million electric vehicles by 2026. However, folks, let's make it very, very clear. All you have to do is read the headline here, and we already knew this. Ford electric vehicles still not expected to be profitable until 2026. Think about that for a moment, folks. Ford still can't figure out how to make a buck on electric vehicles today in 2023 as they're ramping. They still can't figure it out. Neither can Rivian. Rivian, people are like, oh, Tesla lost a lot of money as well when they were ramping their cars, not on a gross profit margin basis. Tesla in 2014, when they produced as many vehicles as Rivian, about 7,000 vehicles, you could actually go look at the earnings calls. They're all public and the earnings reports. Tesla had about 20% gross margin all the way back to 2014. In 2014, when they were doing just 7,000 vehicles, Tesla was positive without energy credits. Let me, let me just like 
demonstrate that to you here. Okay, look, 2014, Tesla had 20% gross margin without credits. It was like 29% gross margin with the credits, okay? That was in 2014, folks. At the same time, in 2022, Rivian, producing about the same amount as Tesla then, is negative, substantially negative on their gross profit margin. And in 2023, 2024, and 2025, Ford is also expected to have a negative gross margin. And BYD, the only electric vehicle manufacturer that's actually remotely killing it, is sitting at a margin of about 1.5%. That's really, really, well, that's, uh, I mean, like, their, their gross margin's a little high. Let me not confuse that here. Let's, let's just stick with gross profit. I'm sorry. With BYD, just pretend I didn't say that for a moment because BYD, that's their net margin. That's not fair. That's their bottom line. Their gross margin is a little higher. Uh, actually, they, you know, they, 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 that's how they actually are remotely profitable uh, is they make ICE vehicles, they make uh, hybrid vehicles, and they're, they're definitely a better company than uh, when it comes to making vehicles than, than like Rivian or Ford. These guys can't figure it out. Uh, but the point is that Tesla, back in the day of a relatively similar production of, of Rivian, was able to figure it out. Ford still can't figure it out. They're not figuring it out today. They can't figure it out going forward, and they probably won't figure it out until 2026. And I hate to say it, but even as you get to 2026, it's just hopium if they actually end up making it profitable, which is kind of remarkable if you think about it. It's kind of embarrassing in my opinion. Now, not only is that embarrassing, but this is where things get really embarrassing. I hate to say it, but this is where the earnings call just goes ugly. You ready for this? So, in the earnings call, they talk about what becomes more critical because they realize that in the future, there's going to be more competition for electric vehicles. And they actually literally say, and because of that competition, quote, we have to expect negative pricing, okay? Now, after they talk about negative pricing, they talk about electric vehicle software becoming more critical for the business. Now, this is where things, in my opinion, actually get laughable because the analysts ask them, hey, how are you ever going to get profitable, right? How are you ever going to make money on electric vehicles? And what Ford says is the following. I'm going to play the audio of it so you could hear it because I thought it was funny. I also posted it on Twitter. Ready for this? Here we go. Play audio on Twitter now. Not the EV platforms, but our new fully updatable electric architecture. Because what we've learned on Pro is we can make real money on software. Not our batteries. All right. What you learned on Pro, Ford, is that we can make real money on software. And he kind of says it like a creep. It felt very creepy listening to the earnings call the way he said it. But, yeah, but beyond me just like bagging on the way he said it, let's think about what he just said. He was asked by an analyst, do you think you can get to 20% gross profit margins? And he talks about trying to make the manufacturing process better. We know they're not going to be profitable until 2026. We know they can't figure out how to make EVs profitable. And at the same time, he's warning that electric vehicles are going to be a negative pricing market. And so how does he end the answer? He ends the answer with, we can make real money on software. 
And I'm like, dude, what software, clown? That's what I wrote on Twitter because I'm sincere with that. What software? What software? I'll tell you what software they're talking about. They're talking about the following. They're talking about their, their Blue Cruise or whatever you call it. Yeah, it's Ford's Blue Cruise. And basically, they refer to this idea that consumer reports suggest that Blue Cruise is a better active driving assistance system than Tesla. And what they do is when you go to the ratings, you'll actually see that some of the heaviest weights are the following. Keeping driver engaged, 9 out of 10 for Ford. Unresponsive driver, 6 out of 10. Clear when safe to use, 9 out of 10. Yeah, that's because you could barely use it anywhere. So they give these bigger ratings for Ford. When you scroll down to Tesla, it says keeping driver engaged, 3 out of 10. Clear when safe to use, 3 out of 10. Unresponsive driver, 4 out of 10. And what they say is the following. Listen to this. This is ridiculous, okay? This is the bagging that they give Tesla. You ready for this? It is also disappointing that advanced driver autonomy systems for some automakers allow their vehicles to drive for a long time without the driver applying any pressure to the steering wheel. So wait a second. Let's pause for a moment. Let's just think about what he said for a moment. This author of this Consumer Reports article is saying it's disappointing that you don't have to grab the steering wheel and wobble it more often. In other words, it's disappointing that you have to be annoyed less. Look, when I'm driving and my car is steering, I don't want to have to wiggle the damn wheel all the time. It's annoying. It's really annoying. I sit there, I watch what the car is doing, and if there's a case where I get nervous, I grab the wheel and make sure it does the right thing, which it usually does, thankfully, knock on wood. If I need to take over, I take over. I'm paying attention, but I don't need to sit there like this the whole time with the car's driving itself. It's stupid. This is why the cameras now make you pay attention to the road with your eyes instead of always having these manual inputs. <sighs> but what does Consumer Reports say? They just happen to also be... Uh, you know, get fundraising for uh, fundraising and, pro and remember, Consumer Reports is a nonprofit. They, you know, there's a lot of legacy auto uh, and old school legacy auto and oil industries that are sort of backing uh, Consumer Reports. So there, there's some tinfoil hat you could put on regarding that, but we won't go down that road. Let's just literally look at the words that they're saying. And the words they're using are, again, it is disappointing that Automakers allow their vehicles to drive for a long time without requiring the driver to apply any pressure to the steering wheel, let alone make sure the driver is actually paying attention to the road. In our tests, both Mercedes and Tesla allowed the vehicle to drive down the highway for about 30 seconds before the first audible alert was given to the driver to put a hand back on the steering wheel. So to this I tweeted and I wrote, Yo, Mike Monticello and Consumer Reports. Did you really sandbag Tesla versus Ford because, quote, it's disappointing Tesla allowed the vehicle to drive 30 seconds before the first audible alert was given to the driver to put their hand back on the steering wheel? How much is Ford paying you? Serious. It's ridiculous. So in other words, Consumer Reports is trying to prop up the Ford software by bagging on Tesla because Tesla doesn't nag you enough. At the same time, the Ford CEO is talking about how important software is to their margins because when they're asked about ever being able to get to 20% gross margin, 
they are basically punting and saying, we don't think we can ever do that without software. What software, Jim? What software? Y'all suck. There's no surprise your stock went down 6% because you just gave terrible guidance for the future of your ability to actually compete with EVs. Now, what's crazy is a lot of people actually invest in the value traps like Ford because they think, oh, well, they know how to manufacture cars. They're going to be able to make it. Well, apparently not. It's really embarrassing. Very embarrassing. Now, I'll give you some highlights, okay? Some highlights because I don't just want to be bad. The Ford Lightning is sold out. Well, that's because they barely make the Lightning. Again, they were only able to make about 12,000 vehicles a month uh, last year. They hope to grow that. But by growing that, they're just going to lose even more money. I hate to say that. Again, I'm not trying to be mean here. I'm just being a realist. Ford lost money. They had not only negative net income. Look, it's on screen. I'm not making this stuff up. Here's the Ford Motor Company consolidated statement of cash flows for the period ending December 31st, 2022. Net income minus $2.1 billion. Not only did they lose money on a net basis, but guess what, folks? And this is before we actually have the pricing war happening. They lost money before the pricing cuts. And now they want to ramp EVs and lose money more until 2026. Ford's going to be losing money year after year after year. And, it, and if they can't make it, they're either going to continue getting subsidized by their shareholders and they'll have to continue to take on even more debt or they'll go bankrupt and somebody else will take over the sort of the ideas of the lightning. But what do you have over here? Oh my gosh, you don't even have free cash flow. You have $6.8 billion of operating cash, but you spent $6.866 on capital spending. You've got negative free cash flow, about $13 million. That's not that terrible. You're pretty close, but basically any kind of cash flow you actually have, you're blowing into losing more money. It's embarrassing. Okay, trying to look at some other, try, try to find some other bright sides here. What do we have? They're building battery plants in Tennessee, uh, Kentucky, Europe. They're building a new battery facility in Turkey. Enjoy the 68% inflation you got over there. Ford expects to have 100% of the raw material in lock by the end of the year so they can actually make these cars. That's great. Lock in all that raw material pricing now so when deflation happens, y'all are still stuck at high prices. That's fine. Average retail price of a Ford is $56,500 compared to $49,000 for average across all brands and $52,000 for Tesla. That's actually interesting. The average price of a Ford is more expensive than the average price of a Tesla or the average price of a regular car. Yet some people like to go, Tesla's a luxury auto manufacturer. So is Ford then as well? Is Ford also then a luxury auto manufacturer if the average retail price of a Ford is more expensive than a Tesla? It's ridiculous. It is ludicrous. Some of these people who prop up these legacy automakers on a pedestal suggesting that, oh, but their valuation is good. Yeah, because they're a value trap. Come on, step bro, you stuck? <sighs> Ford expects to build up to a high volumes. They're bragging about having the best hands-free automotive system on the market, thanks to the Consumer Reports tweet uh, or post. It's ridiculous. They do expect a mild recession in the United States and Europe. They expect higher industry incentives as supply and demand comes back into balance. Uh, they expect tailwinds because of improvements in supply chains. Great. They complained a lot about supply chains being very inefficient. And... Uh, they hope things get better, not only in materials, but also in freight, because they took a $9 billion headwind in 2022. 
And going forward to 2023, they actually expect a tailwind on this department, but they still lose their money. Ah, oh, man. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Like, you know, some people, they, they, uh, they, they, they really want to ignore fundamentals. And I, I, I don't know how much more blunt Ford could be that they're a terrible investment. Now, that's not to say that their stock won't rise with the stupidity of the market, just the ocean of the market going up. But if fundamental companies and fundamentals are going to shine through in 2023, I don't want to be anywhere close to this trash. Man, that was exhausting. Platform architecture is not well set up like Tesla's. Ford uses Unreal Engine to build on Android app to run on the dark horse, for example. You know, I don't really know what that means, but it sounds like you're reiterating what I'm saying, so it sounds good. <laughs> Thanks for the five euros for saying that. Uh, you know, that could have bought you one month of, a, of, of membership here on, on, on the chat here. Do you expect a pullback due to tensions on NVIDIA? Um, you might have some more temporary short-term shorting on, on chip makers because of this. Uh, for me, the chip makers are by the dip opportunity. I'm a big fan, man. Um, yeah. Oh man. Okay. Now we've, we've got even more stuff to talk about. There's a lot. Uh, so let's uh, let's see here. Any any other questions we have in the meantime here? Let me just scroll up for a moment. Let's take like a little one minute breather here, and uh, in, and then we'll get to our next topic here. So uh, hey, small good decisions. You just became a member. Thanks, man. Welcome aboard. Because mm. that's Biden's clone. Oh my gosh. Uh, all right. Kevin, why does the market continue to price in rate cuts this year when the Fed has no says no way it'll happen? Well, it's a good question, and it's a fair question. But you have to remember that the Federal Reserve works expectations. They try to manipulate the market to do what they want. And they want inflation expectations to go down. So actually, the best thing that you can have at the Fed is an aggressive posture while actually being willing to flip-flop if inflationary data actually comes in low. See, the worst thing the Fed could do right now is go, we're good, let's start cutting rates, because then everybody's going to go YOLO spending like crazy again. Everybody's going to go buy a house. Everybody's going to get back into real estate. Treasury yields will plummet to 2% or 1.5% again. Everybody will borrow again, and you'll get your inflation right back. So the Fed actually in a weird way, has to kind of lie to us. And I know that sounds aggressive, but to some degree they have to, and, and Jerome Powell doesn't like lying. That's why in his press conference a few days ago, he was actually a little bit soft because he doesn't like lying. But that's basically what he has to do. He has to lie to us to make us feel like they're being more aggressive. Now, if data comes in bad, they will be more aggressive. That's very clear, right? If the inflation comes in bad, they'll be more aggressive. But by them actually having the space of, yeah, we're not talking about cuts, it's actually a good thing. Uh, and it, it reiterates the Nike swoosh scenario and thesis. The way Ford uses Unreal Engine to implement the HMI system in a 3D environment is not capable enough to set up the architecture for autonomous driving. I feel like you just went from explaining that to a 30-year-old to explaining that to a 29-year-old. In, in other words, it's still pretty impressive. I, I, don't, I don't know HMI system. 
I need it. I need it for like a five-year-old. Uh, HMI systems can provide custom design solutions for electronics and software engineering. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what that means. What's an HMI system? Hardware or software through which the operator interacts with a controller. Yeah, that doesn't help me much either. Human-machine interface. Oh, the the little buttons you push. Anyway. Okay. So, what's next? Oh, dear goodness. Next up, we have Jim, the short seller. Ooh, we got a lot to talk about with Jim and the short seller. So, let's do that. Let's see here. Jim, the short seller. Missing men in the workforce? Hold on, what's this from Fox? Dancing with the stars, Samantha Harris who turned yoga to help her own battle. No, I thought this was actually going to be about the workforce. It's not. It's just showing people doing yoga poses. Thanks, Fox. All right. So a short seller uh, known as, uh, I just call him Jim C. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he has a message for us. So let's go ahead and look at his message, and then we're going to comment about consumer spending in his message. So let's see here. All right, let's get started. Let's bring in fame short. Oops, that's a little loud. Now we're going to talk about a short seller, why he's short the market, and we're also going to talk about what's going on with consumer savings, consumer spending, and which companies could actually win bigly. I think this is going to be one, not only you want to want to watch in full, but you're going to want to pay attention to the companies I mentioned at the end of this, because they're not my traditional companies that I talk about. But let's first listen to why this guy, Jim, is shorting the market. Hedge fund dude, coming to you out of Miami in an interview with CNBC. Let's listen in. What does he have to say? Let's bring in famed short seller. This is our headliner for this evening. Mm. Jim Chanos, founder of Chanos and Company. Jim, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to my hood. I know. Your new hood. Or not relative, uh, relatively new, I down here 20 years. Tw oh, 20 years. I didn't realize yeah, that long. Yeah. Um, what do you make of this this memo, this notion that, that we could be at war with China? It, it feels like people don't want to believe it or don't believe it. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, uh, the war in the Pacific is serious stuff. I mean, let's not forget we have a land war in Europe going on right now. I mean, a, you know, sort of a World War II, tanks, artillery, things we haven't really seen in, in, in our lifetimes. And uh, so shooting war in, in the Pacific, you know, all bets are off. I mean, I, I certainly hope that doesn't happen. And um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, it upsets everything because of what Guy said. I mean, whether it's supply chains, um, whatever. I mean, we, having having China go to war with the West would be just apocalyptic. How does that factor yeah. in, if at all, uh, to your view on China and how you view that market in terms of opportunities for you? Yeah. Um, well, obviously, our, our view on China, which is now 12 years old, I mean, has been based on the financial system and the debt and real estate markets over there. And not a whole lot changes. Obviously, China will become more insular. Um, I've been watching the, the China reopening trade like everybody else has for the last six or nine months um, and uh, sort of marveling at it. Um, but I don't think there's any way to handicap it from my perspective as a hedge fund manager. I mean, again, if it, if it happens, it's, uh, it, it, the unintended consequences will be severe. 
Okay, so a little bit of a warning about maybe war with China, but l let's be real, I don't even think he expects that tail risk is going to happen. So let's get into why maybe a little bit more he's actually short. Jim, do you think though, you know, going forward, we're just seeing, you know, the, I guess the, um, you know, the situation with Russia and Ukraine was so simple. U.S. multinationals had to take a stand about the, uh, the Russian aggression. It's a little different with China. When you think about our reliance from a manufacturing standpoint, our U.S. multinationals' interest in that emerging middle class, which has been a part of the bull case for 20 years now in China. How would that play out? Because I really feel like that could change the dynamic for a lot of U.S. companies. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I think that, that we're far more intertwined into the Asian economies, in particular China. And, and so I want to mention here, holy smokes, the amount of investments Starbucks is making into China, insane. I just went through the Starbucks earnings call, and I'll probably do a, a separate video on it, but it's worth mentioning that in 2018, Starbucks had 3,521 stores in China. By 2022, they added almost all of the stores that they added, 97% of the stores China uh, or that, that Starbucks added in the world went to China, 97% of them, another 1,737 stores. And they, uh, they're now at about 6,000 stores here in Q1, 6,100, I believe. Yeah, 6,100 Q1 2023, Q3 2022, they were at about 5358. And they expect to get to 9,000 stores in China uh, and, uh, by uh, 2025. Now, what's remarkable about that growth is they're, they're, Starbucks is really telling you, they're screaming at you, we, we think that uh, they're going to make it. Uh, they're going to make big profits, big tendies in, uh, in China. Let's keep going. We'll see. Uh, anything that, that would end that and bring it into a, a cold war, much less a, a shooting war, um, I mean, just has to, be, ha has to be just a major, major event for not only markets, but geopolitics. I mean, it's, yeah, scary stuff. Jim, we talked about multiples of this market, expensive, not expensive. I mean, 30,000 feet. What are your thoughts? I mean, again, that don't fight the Fed mantra that's been out there. For some reason, people want to look past it when it doesn't sort of line up with the market going higher yeah. for them. Um, well, I think you know, we, we don't try to time the market. Um, but like anybody else, I have opinions. And things are not cheap. I mean, I, uh, they're not as expensive as they were, say, a year and a half ago. Um, on the other hand, uh, the market is at 18 times forward. Um, profit margins are all-time all highs, so that has not mean reverted. And one of the most mean reverting time series in all of economics and finance is corporate profitability. And it's been stubbornly good and, and high. Um, but since I've been on the street in 1980, not one bear market has ever traded above 9 to 14 times the previous peak earnings. So whether it's 87, 89, 90, 94. I just want to take a quick pause there and mention what he's saying is that we are at such a high level of, of essentially our multiples now on the S&P 500, our price to earnings multiple, right? We're willing to pay 19 times S&P projected earnings for the S&P right now. And Jim is suggesting we've got to get to probably 9 to 14 because historically that's where S&P 500 earnings go. Now, I actually do not disagree with this. It is one of the reasons that I really believe you have to invest in individual companies versus just the S&P 500. 
over at least the next year to two. Because I think S&P 500 companies are going to get reamed with earnings, uh, well, many of them, whereas individual companies that, that you can select might end up showing and proving more pricing power through this sort of recessionary dynamic and you might actually see a lot more earnings growth. Now, no guarantees, okay? It's not personalized financial advice for you, but that is at least something that I think individuals would have to consider. Let's keep going. For uh, 2002 uh, or 09, um, if you think earnings are peaking now, give at $200, um, that's a long way down, right? That's 1800 to 2800 um, We're not anywhere near that. And, uh, and so you have to hope earnings hold up. Um, and you have to hope, I mean, look, right now the market in the, in the space of really six, seven months has gone to corporate profits are going to be up 12% this year. Inflation's coming down to 2%. The Fed may be easing at the end of the year. I mean, that's pretty much nirvana if you're a bull. He's, he's basically here saying, hey, look, the market's pricing in great things. Corporate earnings up, whatever. He's making the bet against the spy, basically. Uh, that's, but that's what markets actually forward pricing think right now. Uh, they're wrong all the time. But people are pricing in a pretty, pretty nice Goldilocks scenario. Are you trading the markets directionally overall or is it just individual? No, I mean, we, in our hedge fund, we are slightly net short, slightly net long. Um, and, and so... Until recently, we were actually slightly net long. I think we've gone to, to back down to zero line, plus or minus. Um, and in our short only funds, we're 60 to 80 percent. Um, and so it just depends on the individual names in those. And, and we try not to take a lot of systematic market risk in our hedge fund. A lot changes, though, when you go from zero percent interest rates to what could be five percent. Yeah. certainly accelerate the fundamental stories you bet against. Um, when you do your deep fundamental analysis. So I'm wondering, are there are there positions you think look even better now because that environment changes? Maybe the debt service is too heavy a burden, et cetera? Well, one of the areas I'm, I'm marveling that has held up as well as it has with, with a couple of exceptions in subsectors like office has been commercial real estate. Um, I just don't get people buying almost any kind of, of, of commercial real estate that is that, that doesn't see good demand at this point at... First of all, hands down, 100% correct. The, the fact that these, these uh, real estate funds are getting massive outflows right now totally makes sense to me. Like, why would you buy real estate and get, you know, 5% uh, cash flow when you could just invest in Robinhood and get 4.15%? Like, it just doesn't make sense. And this is exactly why we see this as, first of all, we see a big compression coming in valuation for real estate, which is exactly what we're preparing for with my Real Estate Startup House Hack. The whole point of House Hack is to wait for the pain and then get in, right? Uh, and, and then we've got some really phenomenal ideas in terms of maximizing cash flow and being able to sort of cycle wedge deals over and over and over again, which we're really excited about. Uh, and, and obviously we're working to bring to non-accredited investors as well. If you're accredited, you have a big advantage by going to househack.com, reading the solicitation there, and potentially investing uh, before uh, the end of February or the end of March because you get some more bonuses for future potential warrants, which are somewhat kind of like call options that you get for free. They're different. Read the website, you'll learn more about it. But, but anyway, totally agree right now that real estate, especially some of the REITs, really expensive, especially commercial, like office REIT. We just had a New York developer start giving stuff back to the bank. And I hate it when people say that because it basically just means 
you sucked and you had to turn around and give up and admit an L. But this New York developer's like, yeah, I'm giving properties back to the bank. I'm just handing the keys back to the bank. And I'm like, you know, it doesn't really work that way. Like you're getting foreclosed on is what it is. Uh, it, it's, it's disappointing. But uh, anyway, let's listen in here more to the short seller and then we'll add some commentary about US consumers, their spending and uh, where we might be going with consumer debt. 3%, 4%, 5% so-called cap rates. It makes no sense. You know, SL Green, which we are short, New York offices, have uh, been short now for a couple of years, trades at a 5% cap rate, and it's levered massively to its cash flow. Um, and I just don't want to buy New York office buildings right now at, at, at a 5% cap when the balance sheet is leveraged 15 to 1. It just makes... Oh. A, and I mean, and there's all kinds of stories like this out there in the commercial real estate. Um, as you know, we're, we're short the data centers, which I think is one of the worst businesses I've ever seen. Um, they traded 100 times earnings. And, and, and earnings are the metric because CapEx equals depreciation. Uh, he's not wrong. Uh, I mean, some of the, the data center REITs trade very, very, very expensively. Uh, I personally prefer investing in the chips. I, I don't know. I feel like chips themselves are like the, uh, the pickaxe, the backbone of it all. And so there's just all sorts of odd anomalies in the valuation space of things that are just in the stratosphere still that sort of make no sense to us. Yeah, sometimes things look cheap and they're actually more expensive than like the Intel quarter, for example, was a disaster in that world. Debt ceiling, and if politics are boring, we don't really talk about them. And I'm not suggesting we're going to go down 2011 path when U.S. debt got downgraded. But it's clear that there's a faction of people that want to push the envelope on this. Is that something that concerns you, or we just sort of slide through this like we typically do? No, I mean, again, it's another black, that would be a kind of another black swan that no one thinks will happen, including me. Um, I, I mean, just when push comes to shove, I think we're going to pay the interest on our debt. Um, but who knows? It could be wrong. All right, so there's our little CNBC interview. Now we gotta talk about the consumer here because the consumer I think is going to be a big piece of this as well as uh, markets. So uh, first of all, is, is it possibly true that uh, you know there's more pain to come in markets? Absolutely. In fact, here's the biggest thing reiterating Jim's point right here. This chart right here is called the yield curve. It is the three month, 10 year. And if I hide myself for a moment, what you could do is you can compare the dot-com crash uh, of the yield curve here to the Great Recession yield curve bottom to uh, approximately the 2020 yield curve inversion, uh, and then which is anything under zero, which is over here, right? So there's your zero line, to where we sit now, which is massively inverted. And folks, look at when the yield curve hit its lowest point. It was at the beginning of 2001. You still had another year to go of hell before the markets bottom. Markets didn't actually bottom until over in this region, substantially higher when the yield curve went substantially positive again. The, yield the markets did not bottom in the Great Recession until the yield curve was substantially positive again. In fact, it went super negative at the beginning of 2017. Now, that's the remarkable part about this market is the biggest thing that bears have going for them right now is that historically, the yield curve is suggesting the most painful part is actually still ahead. The only reason you could suggest that the most painful part is not ahead of us would be to argue that, well, wait a minute. The entire reason markets are selling down is because the Fed is trying to get rid of inflation. As long as inflation goes away and the Fed can then relax, 
Earnings per share will continue to grow. They'll go back to growth. We'll put the pain of 2022 and the beginning of 2023 behind us, and we'll be right back to growing and booming. That's sort of the bullish idea, and it's really the basis in the argument of this time is different, which are the four most dangerous words in investing. This time is different, very dangerous. So that gives a lot of credence to short sellers. So we always want to be as neutral as possible on the channel. Obviously, everybody's got their biases, but the goal is to be as neutral as possible. And look, you got to give credit where credit's due. The yield curve is the most concerning part. Now, you could try to explain this away. You could say that we had structural differences between the recession of 2001, where you had basically an econ a, a market that was running solely on tech valuations, which had bubbled to insane levels and has collapsed. Our market today is so much more diverse. Our economy is so much more diverse. And by having a so much more diverse economy, it doesn't really matter that certain like SPACs or whatever here recently have fallen like 90%. Our broader economy and the consumer is still strong. We'll talk about that consumer in a moment. And that potentially businesses can take this as an opportunity to invest kind of like you're seeing Chipotle doing, you're seeing the chips companies doing, you're seeing a lot of companies throughout America saying, look, the hard part is going away. The second half of 2023 should be very strong for them. That's the argument. Will that hold true? We don't know. But we're also looking at different structural causes of a crash now than we had in 2006 and seven. In 2006 and seven, you had a real estate disaster, dead people getting loans, people who couldn't qualify for loans, getting teaser rates of negative interest rates that ended up adjusting to 7%, and then they had to go into foreclosure, so you had a foreclosure crisis. We don't actually really have a, a clear fundamental disaster that we could see right now. But then again, that's why they call it a black swan, because maybe we're just blind to that potential black swan. And maybe that black swan is coming, and then we could go, oh, yeah, there were real fundamental problems in which case the inverted yield curve would be correct, that the pain is still ahead of us. And that gives credence to what short sellers like Mr. Jim are saying. Now, other folks look at what consumers are doing and say that consumers are basically building up a consumer credit bubble. In fact, CNBC just posted yesterday this particular piece here, which shows that U.S. credit card debt jumped 18.5% and hit a record. Total credit, according to TransUnion, hit a record. Annual APRs are already sitting at 20% on average, basically meaning more and more money of individuals' uh, income is going to debt payments. You've got a, an average balance on credit cards of $5,800. And you're returning to levels of consumer debt uh, in terms of a payment of their personal disposable income that resemble what we saw before the pandemic. In other words, we're getting back to levels where people are spending more potentially than, than they're actually able to save. And this is very easy to see by just looking at the personal savings rate. The personal savings rate was just 3.4% in December. That is a disaster compared to the usual 5 to 6% where we sit. And it's certainly a disaster relative to the COVID era. But then again, we were getting a lot of money that we could save uh, via stimulus checks. So we are in this little consumer savings glut at the same time as people are taking on more debt. And at the same time that we're actually going back to 2019 levels of spending, uh, uh, debt spending as a percentage of personal disposable income. Now, the good news is if you compare to the last recessions, the dot-com bubble and the Great Recession or the recessions of the 80s, 
you actually had consumers spending, households. Households were spending over 11% of their disposable income on debt. We're at 9.7% right now, which is in line with the lower levels of about 9.7% between 2010 and 2020. Now that one percentage point doesn't really seem like a difference, but between 11 and 13% is where we sat during the recessions. And if you see the chart, it's actually a substantial difference. So we've got a substantial way to go. However, this is where I think the problem could actually come. If inflation rears its head again, then you're in this really interesting environment. Because think about this for a moment. What I think you have right now is right now you have people borrowing, they're taking on more debt to get through the inflationary period, right? So debt now as a bridge. Think of it as a bridge, right? You're bridging to get through the painful period. So yes, consumers are taking on more debt. This is just my theory. As long as inflation goes down, then we can refinance the debt and that debt payment as a percentage of this personal disposable income plummets again. We have to rely on being able to refinance that debt. However, if we get a second wave of inflation, this debt stays expensive. And then we potentially go back to the, this, this sort of era that we had in prior recessions where people are spending way more money on their own debt as a percentage of their disposable income. So you go back to 2006 and 2007, 2008, and 2009. You go back to a dot-com bubble and you actually confirm what the bond curves are telling you. You confirm that the worst part is still yet to come. And then guess who ends up being right? Jim the short seller. So if debt is not just a bridge, but it actually stays because inflation pops up again, then the bond market's inversion of the yield curve will be correct. The painful period is still to come. The earnings decline is still to come. The S&P 500 is still to fall. The short sellers will be correct. As earnings collapse, the market will go to crap. However, if inflation goes down and that fundamental reason for a crash now goes away, then guess what could end up booming? And this is what I teased earlier with which companies could win. All of this debt that's being taken on on credit cards in excess of 20% right now or personal loans that are being taken on like crazy right now, something crazy is going to happen to that debt. Let me just reiterate currently what's happening with personal loans. Look at SoFi's earnings, okay? Three months ended December 2021, uh, $1.6 billion in personal loans done by SoFi. One year later, $2.46 billion. In other words, a 50% increase in personal loans at SoFi. SoFi is taking money in deposits and they're lending it out like crazy which means people are borrowing money like crazy. And this is reiterated by what we're seeing in the numbers. This is why SoFi beat on those earnings. They're making a lot of new loans. Not only are they making a lot of new loans, but credit card debt is skyrocketing. Consumer credit has been skyrocketing. We get new consumer credit numbers next week. So yeah, you've got a lot of crazy numbers going on in the world of debt. But what happens if indeed those inflationary numbers go down and all of that debt, what's gonna happen to that debt, folks? What kind of boom are we going to have if inflation falls? Let's write it down. If inflation plummets, who wins? And what companies win that we haven't talked about yet? Refinance companies, baby. Think about it.
any lender who makes money off of making loans wins. So that's probably going to be companies like SoFi. Because think about it. The loans they have are more valuable because they're paying a higher interest rate. And if people refinance those loans, SoFi wins because you have more refinancing income and more, more actual processing revenue, right? And their costs go down. Who else wins probably? Think about like a rocket mortgage or what about a UWM, right? Uh, United Wholesale Mortgage Company. The real estate mortgaging companies win because a lot of people have been buying homes with interest rates between five to 7%. Rates go back to 3%. You're gonna have a huge refinancing boom. And so you're gonna have some companies with massive PP, massive pricing power. If that inflation comes down, we have that, uh, that uh, refinancing boom. And then all of the debt that consumers have taken on actually doesn't become that big of a deal. You could have consumer debt as a percentage of disposable income right now, literally as high as 2007 levels. But if rates plummet and people refinance it away, that burden goes down really, really fast. Also think about this autos. The entire auto sector will be a whole lot more affordable for people to go buy cars because then they can go finance cars again at 3% instead of, you know, the five to 7% they're paying right now. So you will, as long as inflation falls, consumers, what they're doing is they're borrowing through this recession. I really believe that to be true, that consumers and businesses are borrowing through this recession. I believe that's what's happening. And if the recession lasts longer, we're screwed, right? So if inflation doesn't plummet and the recession lasts longer, we're screwed. But if inflation plummets and therefore rates plummet, the refinance companies win bigly, the autos win bigly, and we don't end up having an EPS disaster at, uh, at American companies. Why? Because people can keep spending. So that's a really big thesis and sort of a big conclusion there that all of this credit spend is inflating a massive bubble. But that bubble would actually be manageable if inflation continues to go down. If inflation pops back up, we're all screwed. It's that simple. So that's why looking at the inflationary numbers is very important. Looking at the jobs report yesterday was important because it reiterated the downtrend on average hourly earnings. But it also reiterated that we could potentially dodge uh, a recession in that maybe we don't need uh, a bunch of people to lose their jobs. People losing their jobs is bad for a recession, right? Best case scenario, we don't lose a bunch of jobs and inflation just goes away. Best case scenario. It's a Goldilocks scenario. And that's somewhat what markets, uh, some markets are pricing in now with the Fed potentially uh, writing, um, well, basically uh, with, with markets pricing that the Fed's going to cut rates eventually. So we shall see. We shall see. All right. That was a big piece on short selling and the consumers. Let's see here. Uh, it does look like we just got a tweet, a tweet a little do from Elon Musk. Let's see here. Um... Elon Musk is just an impulsive kid with a terrible Twitter habit. Alex Spiro in court, his, uh, his uh, um, attorney. And uh, Elon laughed at that and says that's fair. <laughs> All right, very well. Let's look at some questions we have here. We on Twitch now? Heck yeah. Sir, this is Mad Money with Kevin. Thank you, I appreciate it. 
We should call it that, although then CNBC will probably sue us. We don't want that. We, we, we like CNBC, okay? Even if you counter-trade them, we like them. How do you think the market will be affected by the fact that the Fed changes the inflation calculating method? Um, you mean the CPI weights? I, I don't think much. I think they're just trying to get rid of the 2020 abnormalities by not using two-year weights, and they're using one-year weights. And the weights, I don't think, are going to move that terribly much. So I think there's a whole lot about nothing over that, but uh, we'll see. Love the sweater. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, it's, it's almost getting time for me to go make another cup of coffee. And, you know, I can't get up right now because I may not be wearing pants. Maybe I'm not even wearing underwear. Nobody knows. Uh, I'm not borrowing for my company or my family while interest rates are this high. I prepared for this in 2020, 21, and 2022 by saving two years. See? Smart. That's smart. Lending Club is good, too, for consolidating debt. Good call. Cynthia Vibes, thanks for being a, a member over here. Pants are for closers. Aren't <laughs> pants are not for closers. <laughs> there we go. We're closers, let's go. And after we close the deals, it's beer time. No, I, I would never drink. I'm not German. Do you think this rally will keep running through next week? I think QQQ and Spy are going to fill their upper gaps. Hmm. Well, look. Uh, I think that shorts are very likely to reload their shorts, uh, the shotgun of shorts before CPI. Uh, so I, I would not make bets on a massive rally before CPI here. This market is going to be very tentative. And even if we are right that inflation is going to go down, just like companies are telling us, I really, really believe my base case scenario with a 70 plus percent likelihood is that this was 2022 and that we're going to see this going up. Basically, I'm just drawing a very volatile Nike swoosh. And we're going to have these little rally runs and then we're going to have the shorts reloading. And then the, the shorts are going to get squeezed again and then we're going to have the, the reloads of the shorts again. And basically, it's going to be a very stressful year, but I do think it will trend up. Will your jet be ready? My jet should be flying again. Uh, I Let's see. On Monday, wait, are we installing this weekend? We might be installing this weekend. We're installing new windshields this weekend. Uh, so I should be able to fly come Monday, Tuesday. Probably not Monday, uh, but but maybe as early as Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm very excited to fly again. Like, I'm, I'm just like, I'm itching to go fly again. Uh, I, I got to get out there and I got to meet my real estate peeps. That's the only reason I got the plane, by the way. People, people, um, hold on a sec here. I'll, I'll, uh, let me just explain. Um, all right. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are like, oh, Kevin's just trying to justify buying a private jet. I'm like, <laughs> no, I think buying a private jet is a very bad idea. Uh, I think it's, it's like an extravagance for most people. And most people end up selling their private jet because, it's stupid. It's like, yay, you yeet around on it for a little bit, but then you're like, damn, this is expensive and this is a bad business idea. That's uh, and because it probably wasn't actually a business idea for people. It was just sort of like a flashy, you know, consumer good. Um, that's the case for, I think, many people who individually buy planes. For corporations who buy planes, if, as long as there is a real business use case, the amount of time that you can save with a plane is remarkable. And I think it's a necessity uh, for me to be able to personally build 
an actual physical relationship with other real estate agents, uh, uh, brokers, lenders, wholesalers in various different markets. I don't think anybody can do that for me. Not yet. We have to build the reputation first and real estate reputations are not built over Zoom. They're not built over the phone. They are built in person. They are built shaking hands and meeting properties in person. They are showing up to the electrician doing work and making other people recognize that you are there, not just for accountability purposes, but also relationship purposes. People want to build relationships with the people they're working with. Real estate is a people business. It is the complete opposite of the stock market. You cannot do real estate if you are not there in person. And it is impossible for me to actually run multiple businesses without being able to fly uh, round trips in a single day. And so again, you know, some people, they, they try to, you know, I think they're just jelly. I think they're trying to just try to justify. It's like this, me buying a plane is the greatest potential evidence that I could give house hack investors. It is basically me saying I am signing my own personal income away for, for future years and risking uh, my own personal net worth uh, for the foundation of this company because the, the company is not even paying for the plane, like house hack, right? But it's basically me saying, I believe in the future potential of house hack so much, I'm willing to put my personal money at stake to make sure I am most well positioned to lead that company. It's kind of crazy. But then again, you have to be crazy, I think, to actually hopefully become a very successful uh, CEO with house hack. Um, you know, I think, I think uh, as to take the entrepreneurial risks that entrepreneurs take, uh, you know, it's, it's, most people shouldn't take that, those sort of risks. It's also very stressful, but hey, uh, you know, we're not in prohibition, so cheers. <laughs> anyway, all right. So uh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> as long as you don't go on any vacations in 2023, maybe we could have a healthy bull market. Yeah, no kidding. I might not. I don't know that we're going to hit many vacations this year. Like Lauren asked me earlier, she's like, Kevin, we should plan a vacation to Hawaii. I go, I ain't planning any vacations. Uh, and first of all, my plane can't make it to Hawaii. So I'm definitely not going to Hawaii. Uh, <laughs> and she's like, what? No, I want to go to Hawaii. Then we'll fly commercial. I go, no. I'm, uh, first of all, I, I don't have time for a vacation this year. And second of all, I didn't buy a private plane to get back on a regular plane. <laughs> um yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think Hawaii is like 22 nautical miles away from us, and uh, my plane only makes it 2,200 knots. But you need to have a 22 or uh, about a 10% buffer. So, oh, woe is me! I can't make it to Hawaii. But we're not buying in Hawaii anyway. At least not now. We'd have to upgrade in the future. Uh, we've we've got plenty. We have uh, we have really we have a, a a pretty neat formula that we can't wait to reveal. It's gonna it's gonna be very very exciting. But 2023 is going to be a, a hard, a, a pretty difficult year of, of hard work, I think. So you need a bigger jet. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 for the expansion phase. No, that's I don't know. Give it give it five years. I I, I don't want to get into higher costs. It minimize costs right now. This thing we got right now is pretty efficient. Uh, I know that sounds crazy because th there are no jets that are even remotely efficient relative to like cars, obviously in terms of like fuel economy and stuff. But relative to private jets, this is probably one of the most efficient business uh, class jets. Anyway. Yeah, there you have it. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening into another Meet Kevin Report. I will see you again tomorrow. Same time, same place. 
Thanks for being here. Remember, you can listen to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, wherever you want to listen to it, you can. Spotify, uh, Spotify a little later on the podcast, a little later. I upload it after I post here. And uh, and we will be changing the pricing now for the courses. Uh, I, I've got to get to work on working on removing those coupons. So it's technically still probably going to be active for like another hour or so. Uh, but that's our final coupon. We're getting rid of that. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate y'all. We'll see y'all soon. Bye.